And this morning we're going to have a, a connection time with Jesus. You guys ready? Yes. All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. Who wouldn't follow him if they really knew him? Who wouldn't make that decision to just give everything up to pursue a life with Jesus? In these chapters, chapters 8 and 9, 12 recorded miracles of Jesus. Six here in chapter 8, six in chapter 9. We've already looked at three of them, and then a whole bunch of them that are not specified here in this chapter. We saw Jesus cleansing the leper. We saw him healing the centurion's servant with a word. We saw him healing Peter's mother-in-law with a touch and with a word. And then he spent the better part of the day healing everyone who was afflicted with all kinds of illnesses and casting out all kinds of demons from all kinds of people. That it might be fulfilled, which Isaiah, the prophet, had prophesied earlier. He himself bore our infirmities and carried our weaknesses. So the healing Messiah, the teaching Messiah, the king is on the prowl, he's on the loose. His word is accomplishing so much. He speaks the word, and the servant is healed. He says, I'm willing, be clean, and the leper is cleansed. He rebukes the fever, and it's healed. That's our Jesus. Just a word is all it takes. Now, Jesus was doing all these things. But it's only a snippet, really, of the big picture of all of the things that our master accomplished. John writes about this in his gospel, that truly Jesus did many other signs, which are not written in this book. But these, John said, are written that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And John said, if you would record all of the things that Jesus did, and put them down on scroll with ink. All of the libraries and all the books and all the libraries in the world, he said, probably couldn't contain the things that Jesus had done. So he was on the move. He was a busy, active Messiah, King Jesus. Much is happening. His power is on display. His power is released through his word. In verse 18, it tells us, that when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, and you know now why the great multitudes were about him, because of his teaching, because of his power, because of his healing, their expectation was heightened. Is this the time? Is this the moment? He's going to come and overthrow the Romans and bring in this kingdom which was prophesied in the Old Testament. Could this be the time? Well, the multitudes were following him. Great multitudes were about him, and he gave a command to depart to the other side. We know from other places in the Gospels that, in part, this was because the multitudes, the momentum within the multitudes was building so that they wanted to force him to become king. Right then, right there, become king. Come on, let's get this thing over with. Overthrow Caesar. Let's get a move on. Let's get the program going. And he wasn't into that. It wasn't his time. That would all take place eventually. In his second advent, in his second coming, King Jesus will set up his kingdom. In his second advent, in his second coming, he's going to overthrow all antagonists to his power. 
But in his first coming, he came to deal with sin. He came to deal with the heart problem that we all have, that we inherited from our first parents, Adam. He came to lift us up out of the fall. That's what he came to do. He came to deal with sin. So, he wasn't willing that these multitudes make him king or force him to do something that he wasn't going to do or wasn't ready to do. In the Gospel of John, it even goes on to tell us that Jesus didn't commit himself to human beings because he knew what was in them. And he wasn't willing to commit himself to them because he knew their hearts. And so here's the case. So he gives the command to depart to the other side. The other Gospels tell us what that command was. Mark says, let us cross over to the other side. Luke says, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. So that's how the command was formed or framed. Let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And it was at this time that a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now this scribe probably had heard Jesus teach. May have been there for the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon arguably ever preached. And listening to Jesus preach and listening to Jesus teach in that sermon, it resonated with him. You see, the scribes, they were closer students of the law than the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were more focused on the traditional verbal interpretations of the law, whereas the scribes, they would actually read the law and look to understand it directly, opening up the scrolls of Moses to try to gain understanding. So they, in their study, from their perspective, and their understanding of Judaism, they heard Jesus teach these scribes. And they could see that he was much closer to the original than were the Pharisees, and than were the traditionalists. And this particular scribe may have been one of those guys that had heard Jesus teach and had become convinced, and what a package it was, had become convinced through his teaching and his miracles, wow, He's the real deal. Everything is wrapped up in him. Not only is he saying it, but he's doing it. Not only is he doing it, but he's saying it. He's representing the very heart of God and the very word of God. And that was what he saw him doing. That's what he saw in Jesus. It's pretty awesome stuff just watching Jesus. And who wouldn't want to follow him if they really knew him? And I think that's one of the missions and one of the challenges of the church today, of true believers. And one of our big challenges is to try to present to a skeptical, unbelieving world that has heard all kinds of things about Jesus that are not true or even close to being true. The challenge is to try to present to them who the real Jesus is. The Jesus of the New Testament. The Jesus that we love and that we know and that we follow and that we honor and we venerate and we appreciate so much. The world oftentimes doesn't know anything of that Jesus. Because they've heard what their university professor said or they've heard what someone else said, but unfortunately too few have actually read about Jesus themselves. That's unfortunate. And so in many cases the only Bible they'll ever read is the gospel according to me, or the gospel according to you, is I'm faithfully seeking to represent the Lord Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they may not open that yet. 
but they'll see the gospel that's being lived in my life and hear it from my lips if I give the Lord a chance to use me. So, here's this scribe. Now, just imagine this scene. He's thinking about it. He's heard him teach. He's watched the miracles. He's thinking about it. Am I going to make him my rabbi? Am I going to make him my teacher? Am I going to take the plunge? He's thinking about it. And then he hears about Jesus giving this command. Let's go to the other side. He's leaving. He's going away. I better, I better make my decision right now. And so he came to Jesus, verse 19. And he said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Should he should, or should he not follow Jesus? The decision was made quickly at that moment. He sees Jesus is leaving, so he says, I want to follow you. I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus answered him directly, not with a threat, or not with bad news to try to get him to react in some emotional way or whatever, but he shared with him the truth. He said, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That was true. Jesus didn't own a home, didn't own any property, according to the scriptures. For our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. That referred to his incarnation, and also secondarily referred to his lifestyle. He chose the lifestyle of a poor, itinerant preacher, dependent entirely upon the blessing and charity of others to live. So he didn't know where he was going to stay. Is it going to be this place or that place tonight? He didn't know. He didn't have a certain dwelling place. Born in a stable. And that pattern continued throughout his life. And so he tells this scribe, this is the way it is. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. No certain place to stay. If you're going to follow me, then what you have to look forward to is poverty rather than prosperity. You can't be getting a big salary if you decide to follow me. That's not going to be in the cards. And you'll probably have to leave your home because we're not staying in one place. We're moving around all the time. And what he didn't even tell him about was the fact that in just a couple of years, I'm going to the cross. And then it's really going to get tough, at least for a season. See, those are the things that Jesus was fair to warn him about and let him in on. Now, did this scribe end up following Jesus? We're not told. We're not told if he decided to leave his home and go wherever the master would lead him. We're not told if he gave up his money, or gave up his comfort, or gave up the respect that he no doubt had as a scribe in order to follow Jesus. I mean, if he chose to follow Jesus, there goes his reputation, because that wasn't the popular thing to do among the religious community. The religious community didn't approve of people following Jesus. And he was in that crowd. So he was giving that up as well. Was he willing to do it? We don't know. But if he was willing to do it, I can guarantee you he doesn't regret it now. But if he wasn't willing to do it, I can guarantee you he regrets it hugely right now. Because he didn't make the most important decision he should have made in his life. Jim Elliott 
was martyred by the Indians down in Ecuador. Before his death, he wrote to his wife these words. A man is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. And soon he was going to lose his life. And he had given up everything to go to minister to these Indians down in the Ecuadorian, Ecuadorian jungles. And he didn't know he was going to be martyred, but he knew he was in danger. Their letters uh, back to the states indicate that they knew that they were in danger, but they, they weren't going to let that stop them. And that was that, where that statement came from. A man is no fool who gives up with that which he cannot keep. I can't keep the houses. I can't keep the possessions. I can't even keep the reputation. I can't keep the opinions of others. None of those things can I keep. But I'm going to give those up to gain that which I can't lose. The treasures in heaven. The rewards that come from serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I've never met a missionary who's been called by God and has followed that call and has left significant amounts of things to go that has ever regretted it. Oh, it's been hard for them. There's been difficulty, and they're honest about their difficulties and the, the hardness of the path, but they don't regret it. Difficulty, yes. Regrets, no. Because they know that there is being laid up for them the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to them at that day. They know that rewards are waiting for them. They know that Jesus is anticipating their coming to him one day. And they know that he is kind and generous, and he will repay them accordingly. Jesus said, whoever gives up his life in order to lose it, we'll most certainly find it. And that's the case. Well, there was another of Jesus' disciples. Verse 21, Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Seems like a reasonable request. Sounds like his father has died and the family is ready for a funeral service and it's time for him as the eldest son in the home probably to go and attend to the funeral arrangements and put things in order and bury his father and then he'll quickly uh, join the procession and come back to following Jesus. That sounds like it's what's going on. And Jesus' comment, therefore, sounds very harsh and very, very brutal. Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That sounds like tough words. You mean Jesus isn't even going to let us attend to the funeral of our father? If it means keeping us back from following him? Is that what Jesus is saying here? I don't think so. I don't think that's at all what he's saying. There's lots of evidence from a lot of anecdotal sources and historical and cultural sources that date back to that period in history that tell us that this was a, an expression that let me bury my father could just as well mean let me attend to my father and carry out my responsibilities as a son even in his older age and he may not have even been sick or in danger of imminent death. J. Vernon McGee tells the story of Dr. Adam Smith who went down to the Middle East and he was a 
an authority on the subject and he was looking for someone to serve as his interpreter. So he went into an Arab village and asked this young man who had been recommended to him to be his guide. And this young man said, well, first I have to go and bury my father. And Dr. Smith looked up and there in front of the man's hut sat the old gentleman, the father, as hale and hearty as you can please, McGee writes. He's still alive. He hadn't died and he hadn't even gotten sick yet. But what the young man wanted was to say that he couldn't leave because he had to care for his father until he died. And what Jesus is saying is, there are others who can do that in cases like that and in situations like that. It's time for you now to attend to me as your master. It's time for you to make a decision and come to me. Your father, he'll be fine. There are others to take care of him. He may not even be in danger of death, and he may live for years. You just come and follow me. You just do what I want you to do right now. You can't put everything on hold for the sake of the kingdom. We can't take care of every single contingency, every single one of life's demands before we make the radical decision to follow Jesus. We've got to let Jesus call the shots. And we've got to let him be the one who leads and directs our lives. And what we find out is that when we lose our lives, when we make those decisions and say, okay, I'm not going to try to figure it all out in my mind and chart the wisest and the most accurate course I possibly can and then do what I want to do, when we lose that kind of thinking, we just say, Lord, you're the master. You decide. You decide where I live, where I work, whom I marry. You decide all these things. I give all these things to you, Lord. What we find is that when we lose our lives, we find them. He gives our life back to us in ways that are way better than we would have had had we not made the decision to follow. That's the way it works. He that finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake, the same will find it. That's what Jesus said. So there is a cost to following Jesus. Following Jesus costs us something. It should cost us something. For a businessman, the days of cheating on his clients, those are over with. Time to be honest. For the couple that's living together outside of marriage, Time to make an honest woman. Time to make an honest man out of that guy or that gal. And get married. And do the right thing. No more shacking up. Sometimes friends are no longer able to be friends. Because of Jesus. And decisions have to be made. Because if I continue my close friendship with you, that's going to mean compromising my life. And the things that I now hold dear. And sometimes it even means a relationship needs to come to an abrupt end. I remember um, right before I got filled with the Spirit and really started walking with Jesus, I had a girlfriend. I'd been dating her for quite a while, a year. And she had expected that by that time we'd be talking marriage and wedding bells and all that type of thing. And I just admitted to her, I'm not into it. Don't want to do it. At least not now. She was disappointed. So two days later, she said, I'm breaking up with you. I'm done. Why are you done? Well, because you've changed. You've deteriorated. How have I deteriorated? And she told me for a half an hour how I had deteriorated. 
She had lots of evidence, lots of things to go on. And I listened. But the Lord used her words to convince me that I needed to surrender my life. I'd really, really gone downhill as a person. I was wrong and I was in sin big time. So the next day there was a commitment to the Lord and a baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was powerful. So the next Saturday I went over to my girlfriend's house. And I thought, this is going to be great. She's going to see the change in my life. She's going to see the joy in my heart. She's going to see that I'm a different guy. I'm not the same hombre anymore. She's going to love the new version of me. And she's going to hear about Jesus. She's going to want to follow Jesus and believe in him. And we'll end up getting married eventually and living happily ever after. So I shared with her what had happened. And she shared with me what typically or many times we hear others say about us. Well, that's really nice for you. (laughs) But I'm not into it. She wasn't into it. And there I was, standing on her front porch with a decision. And I felt the Lord saying to me, I almost heard his voice saying to me, Bill, you have a decision to make right now. It's me or Lynn. It was no decision at all. Jesus had already so abundantly made himself known to me in such a precious way that there's no way I wasn't going to choose him. Sometimes we're faced with those choices. Following Jesus very much can cost us something. Verse 23. Now when he had gotten into a boat, his disciples followed him. Remember, he had given a command to depart to the other side. So now he gets into this boat and his disciples follow him. And they're on the boat. In the boat, they're on the Sea of Galilee, and it says in verse 24, Suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Great tempest on the sea. How bad of a tempest was it? In verse 25, his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. Some of these guys, seasoned fishermen, they've been out on that sea in stormy seas. And even they were freaked out it was so severe. And some commentators believe, and I think it's a good theory, some commentators believe that this wasn't any regular old normal storm. This wasn't the storm that can be, pl- be explained by natural phenomena. Some describe this wind that comes from the east and blows across the plains. And when it hits the Galilee, it really stirs up quite a bunch of waves and and, uh, it really makes things turbulent. But it may not have even been that. What this could have been, and many commentators believe this, is this could have been a direct satanic attack upon Jesus and his men. I mean, think of it. You've got 12 disciples in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus asleep in the boat. What a great time to kill this messianic plan and to end all rivals to Satan's throne. What a great opportunity to waylay the cross so that it never happens, so that Jesus never dies for the sins of the world, so that he never rises from the dead, so that I am not ended in my reign and not destroyed through the death of the Messiah, the Son of God. And some believe that may have been the case. I don't find that an unlikely possibility. Because there is this long war against God and Satan is the leading perp. 
But notice it says that Jesus was asleep in the middle of this storm. And they had to wake him up. That's amazing. It's amazing to me because I know for me, when I'm asleep, I can be in the what I think is a very sound sleep. And if a drop of water falls on my cheek, I'm immediately awake. The wind and the waves and the water flopping on top of his body and getting him all wet and drenched and all of those things. He remained asleep. No question he was exhausted. The life of ministry that he was uh, living in was very, very strenuous. And you remember that story where Jesus is on his way to the home of Jairus to heal his little daughter, raise her from the dead. And this woman who had an issue issue of blood sees Jesus and says within herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And she reaches out and touches the hem of his garment and immediately she's healed. And the Bible says when Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him, he said to the crowd, who touched me? The point is that he perceived power going out from him when a miracle was occurring. Now imagine being there that, that day, that previous day, when he's standing there healing everyone who came to him from all kinds of places with all kinds of diseases and casting out demons with the word. Imagine the amount of power that was going out from him. And imagine how exhausting that would have been for him. Not just on a spiritual or a physical level, but on a spiritual and an emotional level. Exhausting. So he's asleep in the boat. Not even able to wake up in the midst of a great storm. The message for us here, of course, is that sometimes in the midst of the storms of life, it seems like Jesus is asleep and unaware. But he's not. Psalm 121 verse 4 says, He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. It might seem like he's asleep, but the only reason it seems like he's asleep is because he's not uptight like we are. We're just freaking out. It's an emergency for us. But he's not uptight. He's relaxed. He's not asleep. In this case, he's asleep. This is literal sleep. But in reality, in a spiritual sense, he's sitting at the right hand of his father. He's praying for his believers. He's making intercession. He ever lives to make intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He's lifting us up in prayer and we're we're thinking, he's got to be asleep. He's lost contact. He's not aware of what's going on. Yes, he is aware. And no, he hasn't lost contact. And no, he's not asleep. He's just not perturbed. He's not nervous. He's relaxed. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows exactly how this is all going to work out. He knows exactly how he's going to get us from point A to point Z. And he who has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's just the way it is. That's the way he works sometimes. And so he addresses them. They say, Lord, save us. We're perishing. And he said to them, why are you so fearful, you of little faith? I don't know about you, but if I'm one of the disciples, I hear him ask that question. I say, what's that? You're asking me? You're asking me why I'm fearful? Are you serious? Look at this. That's why I'm fearful. Look at this. 
But remember what Jesus had said. He had given a command to depart to the other side. And specifically, the words of the command were, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Jesus said, we're going to make it to the other side of the lake. That's what he said. He didn't say anything about an abbreviated trip. He didn't say anything about becoming shipwrecked. He didn't say anything about capsized boats or sunken boats or anything like that. What he talked about was getting over to the other side. He was going to get us over to the other side, he said to the disciples. And he didn't say anything about a submarine ride. Let's go under to the other side. No, he said, let's go over to the other side. We're going to go on the top of the water in a boat like normal people do. We're going to get there. We'll be at the other side. And we have to understand that that's the case in our lives. We're going to make it to the other side. Let's just say that the other side is heaven and living in eternity and glory with Jesus Christ, safely tucked away with him in eternity free from this body of sin, free from the hassles and the pains and the trials of this life, he's going to get us there. How do we know that? We know it because he promised it. And how do we know his promise is good? Because he's the son of God. How do we know he's the son of God? Because he rose from the dead and he fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. He's the truth. We've got something solid to place our faith in. So he says to them, why are you fearful, O you little faith? Well, they were fearful because they lost the visual with Jesus and their eyes were on their circumstances. That's why they were fearful. Now, I don't criticize them. I'd have been fearful too, just like they were. I'd have freaked out like they did, just in the same way. There's no question in my mind. But in a perfect world, had their faith been keen and had their eyes of faith been wide open and had they handled this in an ideal way, this is what it would have looked like. Okay, here we are, boys. Peter says to John and Andrew says to Peter and all of them talking to one another. Here we are. This situation looks dire. Now, the master told us we're going over to the other side, but this it's really, really tough. I mean, look at the wind, look at the waves. We can all see it. Now, Jesus has, in the past, always been able to get us out of every situation that we've been in that's been really tough to deal with. So, he said, we're going over to the other side, we're going to get there. So, boys, how can we encourage each other to trust Jesus in the middle of this storm so that we're really giving glory to him and giving him credit for his ability to deliver us? How can we do that? We're just going to trust him. Yeah, I know, it looks like he's asleep, they tell one another. But we know that that doesn't mean he's not paying attention. Something's going to happen here, boys. Let's, all right, blessed opportunity. Something's going to happen here. What's he going to do? What's he going to do next? He's the son of God. He's the savior of the universe. He's the king of kings. What's he going to do next? And their hands rub together, their excitement. What's the next moment that's going to be unveiled as he acts and as he moves? And then something happens and, and it's all calm and yeah, see, just like we thought. Jesus did just what we th thought he would do. He, he, he calmed the seas. He, he did something. And he, even in the middle of our, of our situation, 
That would have been the ideal scenario. That's not how they handled it. It's probably not how I would have handled it either. I wouldn't have handled it ideally. But I have to give them credit, and I think we all should, because they learned something profound through this experience. Why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? He asked them the question. And then verse 26 says, Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? See, that was critical to what they learned. Who can this be? Do you see that? They were asking themselves questions. Who is this? What is he capable of? What kind of man is he? What kind of savior is he? Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? And their brains start working. And their synapses begin to connect. And they go back to the Old Testament and they remember Psalm 107 that says that Yahweh, we can see his works and his wonders in the deep. And that Yahweh calms the storm so that its waves are still. Or they flip over in their minds to Psalm 89, which says, Who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? And the Old Testament passages floating through their mind, working together, they're making the connections, and they realize, this is Yahweh. Yahweh in human flesh, God in human flesh is in this boat with us. It looked like he was sleeping, but he that keeps Israel doesn't slumber and he doesn't sleep. He was taking care of us the whole time. Who is this? This is God himself. God himself is among us. And they learn their lessons from this whole scenario. And some have pointed out this is a beautiful picture of the humanity of Jesus. He was sleeping And the deity of Jesus, he commanded the storms as Yahweh, and they stopped. The God-man was in the boat with them, and they were connected to him. Now, they exercised little faith at the time, but later they showed great faith, and this is where we need to give them credit. Because later they would be in storms far greater than this. Not physical storms, but spiritual storms. Storms of persecution. Storms where Christians were dying and being chased from city to city because of their faith. Each of these believers, except for according to tradition, John the Apostle, was martyred for their faith eventually in Jesus Christ. But they passed these tests with flying colors. Why? Because they'd asked that question, who can this be? And they had the right answer in their minds. And so now they had faith in a huge Messiah, not the small one that in their minds was sleeping in the boat. It's like we've said before, if you have great faith in a weak bridge, you'll end up falling down into the chasm below. But if you have small faith in a large, strong bridge, You'll make it over to the other side, and you'll never fall into the chasm. What they needed was a bigger bridge in their minds. 
They needed a bigger concept of who Jesus was. They needed him to grow from a sleeping, seemingly uninterested Savior in the stern of the boat to the ever-watchful, all-powerful, the one that can command the winds and the storm with his word and they'll cease. That kind of Savior. That's what they needed to have happen and grow in their mind. And when that happened, their weak faith at times was in a strong bridge and they always stood firm. And it's no coincidence that when they stood before the Lord and they prayed and they said, Lord, look on their threats. They're trying to kill us. They're trying to silence us. Lord, look on their threats that we might be given great boldness to speak your word. It's no coincidence that prayers like that and actions like that were done after Pentecost, after they were filled with, baptized with the Holy Spirit, after they began to learn how to live by another power much greater than themselves. The filling of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit changed everything for them. Quite a story. Yeah, the Lord's going over to the other side and he'll get us there. Verse 28. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, some manuscripts say the Gadarenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. The country of the Gadarenes was the country that had originally been possessed by the Jewish tribe of Gad. Thus the name Gadarenes. Remember when Joshua came up with the armies of Israel on the east side of the Jordan and then crossed the Jordan River into the promised land to take the land of the Canaanites? Well, two of the tribes and half of the tribe of Manasseh said, we want to have our possession on the east side of the Jordan. So Joshua said, okay, Reuben, you can have your possession on the east side. Gad, you can have your possession on the east side. Half of Manasseh, you can have your possession on the east side. And so that's why the tribe of Gad set up a territory on the east side of the Jordan River. It goes all the way back to the days of Joshua. So it was the place of Gadara, the place of the Gadarenes, and so on and so forth from Gad. Now that's going to have something to do with the rest of the story, but that doesn't mean that in this present day it was wholly populated by Jews. There were many Gentiles living in those areas at that time, and it was a Gentile-dominated area, which we'll see the significance that, of that in a moment. But here are these two demon-possessed men come forward. They're coming up out of the tombs, which were unclean places for Jews. Places where bodies were laid. These demon-possessed men were so fierce that you couldn't even go near that place. That would mean that you couldn't go visit your loved one if they were buried there. Couldn't lay flowers at the tomb. Couldn't do any of those things because these demon-possessed dominated the area. Now Matthew, just a side note, mentions two demon-possessed men, two demonized men. Mark and Luke only mention one. Most likely because one of these 
was possessed far more severely by devils than was the other. In fact, in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, when Jesus asked the question of these demons, what is your name? The answer was, we are legion, for they were many. That's how many were in a Roman legion, 6,000. So one of these two had 6,000 devils in him at the same time. And the other one was most likely not as significantly possessed. So Matthew mentions both of, both of them, Luke and Mark mention just one. And so they cry out, these demon-possessed men and the demons that are inside of them, they cry out, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? That's interesting, isn't it? These demons crying out. They recognized Jesus. They knew his name. They also knew that he was the Son of God and that he is the Son of God. They also knew that they were going to be tormented one day. And they also mentioned being tormented before the time. They knew that their time of ultimate judgment was going to happen and it was a fixed time in the future. So that tells us that they had pretty sound theology. They knew who Jesus was. They knew him as the Son of God. They knew he had the power to judge. They knew their day was coming. In Luke's gospel, the demon-possessed begged Jesus not to be thrown into the abyss, which is the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit, what kind of a place was that? Well, Revelation chapter 9 tells us it was such a severe place that these scorpion-like demons come up out of the bottomless pit during the Great Tribulation period, and they have the ability to inflict pain, great pain on men for five months. Men want to seek death as the result of the pain of these things, but death eludes them. Now, these demons, they beg Jesus, don't cast us into the abyss. They don't even want to go there because it's such a gnarly place with such evil, corrupt demons that are living there. It kind of paints the picture, doesn't it, that demons are aggressive towards each other or can be. They didn't want to go there because these other demons, which were mega demons compared to these less significant demons, were dangerous. They were dangerous. They didn't want to be hassled. They know they're going to be judged. They know that their day's coming. They know that one day the Son of God is going to put an end to their wickedness. You remember what James said about demons and about their theology. James said, you believe that there's one God. Well, you do well. The demons also believe, and they tremble. And someone said that the problem is that there's an intellectual belief, and then there's the belief of the heart. And there's an 18-inch difference between the belief of the brain and the belief of the heart, and this is where salvation occurs, the belief in the heart, not just the brain. doesn't mean we have to throw away our noodle. Or leave our brains at the door to become Christians. It's a very rational faith. What it does mean is that we have to receive Christ with all of us, including our heart. And a lot of times, the head knowledge only, that 18 inches, can keep a people, a person from heaven. Now a good way off from them, verse 30 
there was a herd of many swine feeding. The demons, they knew about this herd of swine, many swine, so they begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. So they had to have permission to even go into some pigs. That's how limited their power was at the hand of Jesus. So he gave them permission. He said to them, Go. And that one word was all they needed. And that one word gave them the ability to go into these many demons. Tertullian makes the comment, If a legion of devils had not power over a herd of hogs, much less have they over Christ's flock of sheep. You see, these demons couldn't hurt these these pigs unless Jesus gave them permission. But how much more valuable are we than these pigs? And we belong to Jesus. And we're in his hand. And nothing by any means hurt us because he's got us in his hand. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. And that just shows the intention of these demons all along. All they came to do was to steal and to kill and to destroy, John 10.10. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything including what had happened to the demon-possessed men, a remarkable story. Had it been one person that went into the city to explain what had happened, it might have been met with some doubt, skepticism. But all of the keepers of these pigs went into the city and gave witness of what had happened. So there were many witnesses to the event. So this caused the whole city, verse 34, to come out and meet Jesus. So now they're going to have a meeting time with Jesus, a prayer meeting with Jesus, the whole city. What a great time. What a great opportunity. They're going to have a prayer meeting with Jesus. What are they going to ask him? Jesus, we have seen what you've done. We've heard about it. You went into our tombs and you released our tombs from the power of these demons. And they're not there anymore. We're so thankful for that. And that shows us how good you are and how powerful you are. Lord Jesus, now that you're here, can you just, can you just live here and stay with us? We'd love you to have, we'd just love to have you here all the time. Forget about Capernaum. You don't need to go back there. Live here. Make this your home base. We want to honor you as our king and worship you as our savior and serve you as our God because you're the only one that has the kind of power to do the things that just happened. That could have been their prayer meeting and the Lord Jesus would have been happy to bless them in many ways, no doubt. But what was their prayer actually as they gathered? When they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. How sad that is. Their prayer would work against them eternally. And as one commentator said, they preferred pigs to persons, swine to the Savior. 
They just lost their economy. They just lost their business. They lost lots of profit. You can't have somebody like this around, stepping into their affairs like this, meddling with a kind of power that's spooky to us that we don't understand. We certainly don't know its source or origin. So they begged him to leave. They begged him to leave. Jesus, ever the gentleman, chapter 9, verse 1, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. He granted their request. He left. He'll do that. If somebody decides, I don't want you, Jesus, in my life. I don't need you in my life. You crimp my style. You get in the way of my plans. I can't live the kind of life I want to live with you around. So I'd rather not have you around. Would you please leave? Jesus, the gentleman, he will leave. But those persons who have decided to reject Jesus like that are going to pay for it and regret it for all eternity. It's a sad choice. But those who say, oh Jesus, this is the classic case of good and evil. The evil lived in our tombs for years. And you're the good one. You're the savior. You came in and you were our hero, our knight in shining armor. You conquered the devil. We have to serve you. We want to serve you. We love you, Lord. And think of it this way. If the Lord had the power to get at least 6,000 demons very quickly out of these men and command them with one single word, go, to be in a herd of swine, then what can he do with the things that we're dealing with in our lives? The pains of the past, the memories of things that happened to us, perhaps even as a child, the sins that have so hurt us and plagued us at times in our lives, like Hebrews says, that so easily beset us. If he can do that with the devils, and if he can do that with the demons, what can he do with the things that we deal with in our lives? You see, this is the case of from the greater to the lesser. The maximum amount of power that we can imagine a Savior having is illustrated here. And anything else, he's easily able to take care of, if we'll trust him. Remember, our faith may be weak, but weak faith in a strong bridge gets us across the chasm every time. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. We thank you for the revelation of yourself to our hearts. And as the title of this message goes, who wouldn't want to follow Jesus? Who shouldn't follow Jesus? You're so worthy to be praised. And not just that, but you're so worthy to be lived for in every way. And nothing that we have in this life, whether it's reputation or material things or even relationships, none of these things are worthy to be compared with the glory of following you. So make us better followers, Lord. And as we're in this attitude of prayer, 
Maybe the Lord is knocking on the door of some of your hearts right now and he's saying, listen, I want to come in. Do you trust me? Do you believe that I love you? Do you know that I died for you? Do you know that I rose from the dead for you? Do you know that I'm praying for you, that I want to live inside of you? Do you know that I forgive you and that I want to extend that forgiveness to you? Do you know that you can have a new beginning and your past and all of the stuff that happened in it can end and you can have a brand new start today? Do you know these things, the Lord would say? Why don't you open your heart right now and let me in? Why don't you give me a chance to be your Savior, to be your Lord, to be your Master? How many would say, that? Ah, that's me. I want to take up that offer. I want Jesus to come in. Just raise your hand right where you're seated. I want to pray for you. Anybody this morning? It's time for you to say yes to Jesus. Just raise your hand high, and we'll have a word of prayer. Anybody this morning? Lord, you've also given your invitation to your bride. There in Revelation 3, we hear your voice saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You're speaking to Christians. Church of Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and have fellowship with him and he with me. So Lord, thank you for knocking at the door of our hearts. We who know you. And we desire, Lord, to have all of you in our life. So as you come into these doors of our hearts, Lord, if you see anything there that's displeasing to you, anything that has to go, would you just show us so that we can confess it, admit it, be done with it, and have you forgive us and cleanse us from it? We want to be free, Lord. We need to be free. And we believe that you're the only one that can free us. So we thank you, Lord. We give these things to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?